This episode contains descriptions of slave brutality. Listener discretion advised. When discussing Britain's slavery history, the fiercest spotlight tends to fall on English elites, and with good reason. Lawmakers and slave profiteers were often one and the same, such as the Drax family, who owned some of the biggest slave plantations in Barbados, and whose descendants still sit in the House of Commons today. We tend to think of the people bound up in slavery as existing at two binary ends of the spectrum. The people who made their blood money from the practice, and the enslaved themselves, stuck in colonies thousands of miles away. But what of the working poor in Britain? What role did they have, if any, in the machine of slavery? And how did living in a plantation society affect their existence? Perhaps one part of the answer lies in an unassuming area of the Welsh countryside. I'm Moya Lothian-McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. Head to Mid Wales and the county known as Powys. As you can imagine, it's beautifully green with rolling hills, historic gardens and cathedrals. You really don't get a county more picturesque than Powys, except perhaps Herefordshire. But this wasn't always its given name. Up until 1974, people knew the area as Montgomeryshire, named after one of William the Conqueror's feudal lords. It was in Montgomeryshire and the neighbouring historic county of Merithamshire that a cottage industry sprang up in the 1600s that would, for a time, change the fortune of the workers living there, producing Welsh plains cloth. The fabric was wool. It was rough and hard and cheap. And just like Powys, this cloth also had another name, Negro cloth. This cloth, made in the cottages of ordinary labourers living in the rolling Welsh hills, was shipped to the burgeoning slave colonies of the Americas and the Caribbean to clothe the ever-growing numbers of enslaved African workers. Some Welsh plains fabric even made its way to Africa, where it was traded for goods and people. But the study of Welsh Plains has been limited until recently, when the work of academics like Liz Millman and Chris Evans brought to light this overlooked story among thousands that made up Britain's plantation society. The evidence has been there all along. Do you know how sometimes, if you're not looking for a subject, you don't see it, it becomes dim. I'm talking to Dr Marion Gwynne, a heritage consultant and historian who has helped unearth the hidden history of Welsh Plains cloth trade. During the French Wars, round about 1790s up to about 1815, when the gentry of Britain could no longer go around Europe and they had to go on their grand tours, they started turning to places like Wales, they started turning to places like the Lake District and Scotland, and they wrote their travel diaries as they were going along through. They were talking about valleys, flowers, mountains, stately homes. And when they were coming through North Wales, several of them wrote about how the weavers were producing cloth that was clothing the enslaved 
in the West Indies. Historians over the years have been examining these travelogues and reading about flora and fauna, the types of people that they spoke to, and they have every single one of them passed over that sentence where they have discussed that they were going over to clothe the enslaved. So where was this fabric being shipped to? Welsh planes would have gone down along with other goods, copper, guns, other weapons, other fabrics as well to the west coast of Africa. Some of it would have been exchanged for enslaved people and for provisions to provide them for the journey over as well. They would then do the horrific middle passage where, of course, initially 30% of the enslaved died, latterly 10%. It was a horrible journey for them. And then they would arrive in the Americas, different places, the Caribbean, and North America and South America. We have records of Welsh planes being sold for clothing for the enslaved across all the Americas. The Middle Passage was the forced voyage enslaved Africans took across the Atlantic Ocean and was one leg of what was known as the Triangular Trade. We first mentioned the Triangular Trade in episode two when talking about Isaac Newton's dependence on plantation and slave ship networks. The triangular trade and networks were what connected Europe, Africa and the Americas. 30% of enslaved African people died during these journeys. With Welsh Plains cloth, I wanted to know if this was in the Caribbean at all. Very much in the Caribbean. It wasn't the main fabric. The main fabric in the Caribbean was Osnabrück, which was a linen. It was named after a German town, Osnabrück, in North Germany. But it became more of a generic name for all linens, all cheap linens used at that time. For example, it was produced across many parts of of Europe, in Silesia, Bohemia, and other places like that. And it was even produced produced in north of England and in Scotland as well. So you've got this entire industry. And certainly at the end of the 18th century, cloth and clothing was making up two thirds of the export trade down to Africa and over to the Americas. It's enormous. It's absolutely enormous. And Welsh Plains was a part of this. Let's go back to these cottages in the middle of Wales, because I wanted to know who was making this cloth. I'm certain it wouldn't have been middle-class merchants. It must have been like ordinary farming families. It involved the entire family, but it was very gendered. It was very structured. What tended to happen was that women and children tended to collect the wool during the summer season, not only from shearing, but also, of course, if the sheep were out on the moors, on the commons, and they'd be catching their coats on the briars, on the brambles, and so the children would be collecting from sources like that. The women span that was their role and they had wheels or they used whirls when they were spinning until the spinning wheel was invented so they would try to produce as much spun wool as possible for the winter and of course then during the winter season when the farmers and the farmhands wouldn't have as much to do on the farms because of lack of light because of the winter season then it was the men who did the weaving so it was an entire family production you've also got at that time there was a massive increase in these would all have been tenant farmers none of them would have owned or hardly any of them would have owned their own farms and there were a rise in rents in rates they had to pay, taxes. I suppose we'd call it now a dual economy. They were also doing their sheep farming, which was never, never a rich way of trying to earn a living. And so they were trying to supplement that by doing the cloth weaving as well. 
You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. What impact could be seen in the Welsh communities producing this cloth? Were fortunes increasing or additional trade coming in? What we find is the early part of when the cloth was going over, the weavers stayed pretty poor because what was happening was most of British trade was governed by guilds and they had been from the medieval period and there was a guild for cloth. This was the Draper's Guild and they had a main branch in London and they had a Shrewsbury branch as well. Shrewsbury is right on the English side of the Welsh border, halfway up. It's a beautiful town, absolutely beautiful. Still got some gorgeous medieval buildings there. And it was raking it in from being a massive centre for wool trading. They controlled everything. If they didn't want to buy your cloth, then it wasn't being bought. On the other hand, Merionethshire, the west side, you've got to cross the Berwyn Mountains. That made it quite difficult. And so you've got pack horses and they're going over the mountains, quite a difficult route, these pack horse trains. Now what would happen was that the pack horse leaders would be given orders to buy with whatever was sold, whatever the cloth was bought for in Shrewsbury to bring those supplies back to the weavers. Now, while that meant that the weavers could get their supplies, it also meant that no money was bought locally. So it was spent locally. So there was no investment within the local community. How much of this cloth was being sent out and how do we scale that down so people listening can understand the amounts? The quantities that were going over were absolutely prodigious. We know, for example, that the uh, just from one London merchant, one London, London merchant, and this is about 1716, he actually in one month bought eight and a half miles of Welsh planes. And if you think this was woven on hand looms, not on mechanised looms, is just astounding. And we know, for example, if we have a look at the amount of Welsh planes that is being produced under the name of Negro cloth, and this is based on an annual allowance of about four yards per person. So that's four yards per enslaved person per year. By 1812, it's estimated that nearly eight million yards of, so that's, I know it's not quite the same as a metre, but it's pretty close. Just under, it's about seven and three quarters million yards of Negro cloth was being consumed by 
North America, the Caribbean and South America. Welsh plains cloth was so inextricably linked to enslaved African people that it became known as Negro cloth. So the estimated 8 million yards of this cloth produced each year meant around 1.5 million enslaved people received just four yards of this cloth year to clothe themselves. What a staggering number. I asked Marion how this trade began and how did this little Welsh county become linked to Africa and the Americas? A lot of that has got to do with the way that the slave trade was run. We tend to think that those responsible for slavery were the slave owners in the Caribbean and in the Americas. But I think we've really got to understand that it was a far larger network than that. Yes, the slave owners, the plantation owners were making it very big in the Caribbean, but they could never have kept the trade going. Where the money was, where massive amounts of money was being made, the manufacturers, the traders, the investors, the insurers, the shippers who kept the trade going. And without them, you take any one of those away and you don't get a slave trade. So what you have are an incredible network of merchants who understood how to get credit, how to get insurance, who to speak to, how to get the capital, what shippers you actually needed to get the process going. The Portuguese had started trading with West Africa in the early years of the 1400s. And so by the time that Britain started getting involved about 150 years later, there was already a very sophisticated network set up for trading in cloth. And for example, Welsh cloth was taken to London, principally, or Bristol, but latterly, especially with Midwells to Shrewsbury by the Drapers Guild. And they sold it on then to London merchants who'd be selling it over to Flanders, to Spain. And of course, they were already selling on to Atlantic merchants. So it was already going over to Africa before Britain actually started directly trading along the west coast of Africa. Do we have any idea about when this cloth began to be, as you say, directly traded and also used to clothe slaves in plantations? How did that come about and why this cloth? I think possibly why this cloth was because, if you're looking at the enslaved, because it was cheap and because it was actually quite durable. Wool is quite a durable material. It actually bends. It's more flexible than cotton. And even though they wouldn't necessarily have known this at the time, cotton, of course, didn't come in until later as a fabric for the enslaved. It's actually better at wicking away sweat. People think, why, why? was wool used and not cotton, but it actually served very well as a workwear fabric. How it got to Africa is very, very interesting because, of course, we have to look to the records that we have. And one of the principal forms of evidence we have for the use of Welsh Plains is from the records of the Royal African Company. This was set up in an earlier form in 1660. It was set up by the Duke of York, who was Charles II's brother, and its backers were a whole range of members of the royal family, members of the Anglican Church, many members of the British aristocracy, and many other dignitaries. 
as well. It was highly profitable. And we know for their records why Welsh Plains were so popular, because the African slave traders and the African chiefs just couldn't get enough of it. I have a couple of quotes here if you'd like to hear those. One of their agents, and this is Richard Hassel, this is one of the Royal African traders here, and he's writing as early as 1682, and he says, I, I do, do believe, believe that, that Welsh Plains would sell well here, by reason they make all their rich clothes of them, so that care must be had to the several sorts of colours, red, green, yellow, blue, purple and orange, and the Fidalgo that's the Portuguese trader gave me a cloth made of Welsh plains, which is very handsome. So obviously the Welsh plains that was going over to Africa was a very different cloth to that going over to the Americas. It probably was still a rough cloth, but as you can see, the colours were very vibrant. And we know by the records of the Royal Africa Company that different areas wanted different colours. For example, another agent, Mark Bedford Whitting, he actually writes that blue Welsh, Welsh plains are no commodity here. I have a parcel of them, but will not sell. If your worship can possibly spare us more greens with reds and yellows, but no blue. They're not being in any demand here. Perhaps blues are better at Cavo Corso. So the Welsh cloth was durable. It was suitable for the hard labour enslaved people performed every day. You could wipe sweat away from your brow and the cloth absorbed it better. This cloth tells a story and I want to know what else the makeup of the cloth could tell us about the brutality of slavery and about what those who wore it had to endure. Originally, in the very early years of the use of enslaved Africans, let's talk about the Caribbean now. In the Caribbean, there was no obligation on them to provide clothing. And there were many complaints about the enslaved people being naked and how that affected them mentally and how that affected their work. it became expedient for the owners to provide clothing because they worked better. It's awful. But of course, what they were doing was that they were imposing an Af a European style of clothing onto Africans rather than the sorts of clothing that they would have been used to. This is so interesting because even now we're all held to European definitions of beauty and fashion. And as Marion says, this was something that was imposed upon enslaved people. It is a pattern of behaviour that is present now, was present then, and most likely started a long time before then. The amount of initially when they had to provide clothing for them, the very first, it's called the slave code that was produced, I think in Barbados was about 1692. And that actually said it had to provide, the owners had to provide them with something like two tops, two trousers for men and a pinafore, you know, two pinafores for the women and a lesser amount for the children. In actual fact, for most of their years until they got older, most children were naked. Then the law was changed because it became very expensive for them to provide ready-made clothing. So they started buying cloth by the yard. And it said sufficient amounts of clothing. They had to provide clothing sufficient amounts. 
and it was up to the individual owners to judge what sufficient meant. We know from some of the ones who, the records of an observer who went to one plantation, who saw that the clothing of the enslaved in this one plantation was so ragged that the enslaved workers were knotting the shreds of their clothing together. It's just horrific. Now, the larger plantations tended to be better at supplying a decent amount of cloth, you know, so they could make some more of it. But it's surprising because some of the agents, especially in the Caribbean, what you had was that you had the very wealthy plantation owners. They left the Caribbean as early as they could because the conditions were so bad there. You've got diseases. You forever having rebellions by the enslaved because they fought every day against their enslavement in various forms and you had hurricanes and you couldn't get the lifestyle the status that they wanted so they came back to britain leaving their plantations in the hands of their agents and so their agents are writing letters and they're saying please can you send us more cloth honestly the amount of work will increase such that it covers more than you will spend on the clothing. So it is to your advantage that you provide this clothing. Such a sad story. Another recurring theme, capitalism. Providing cloth and more materials not to give enslaved people dignity or a tiny bit of comfort as it was, but to squeeze more work and money out of them. Going back to Wales, although it's all interlinked, obviously, were there any parallels to the situation of labourers in the UK? So at the same time, what were the Welsh labourers wearing? Were they wearing Negro cloth? They were certainly wearing Welsh planes and some work has actually been done on this. What we actually find is, yes, very simple costumes, but on the other hand, and I would like to say, of course, conditions for industrial workers and for the industrial port of Britain was very, very bad indeed. And it takes nothing away from that when I say what I'm about to say, is I do not think that we can compare 18th century slaving in the Americas with, on the whole, 19th century industrial workers. If you have a look at the slave laws across the Americas, the punishments for even what we would consider to be minor crimes, they were lessened during the period of slavery. But initially, enslaved workers could be castrated, they could be dismembered. It was written in, in the slave codes that they could be dismembered. They could have a hand lopped off, a foot lopped off, their ears cut off, noses slit, tongues cut out. And of course, every woman, every enslaved woman who bore a child, that child was enslaved. And I say, yes, the fight that the industrial poor and the rural poor in Britain had was bad, but it does not compare. It does not compare. When did this trade, which was so profitable, so prodigious, start dying down and why? If you didn't need any further proof of how it was connected to the slave trade, the British slave trade ended in 1807 and the use of enslaved labour in British colonies in the 1830s, that led to a drop. It had gone down from 38% of the amount of cloth that has been brought for enslaved workers to 28%. So it was still it was still quite a lot. But the end of the British slave trade was a massive, massive killer for it. 
Talking with Marion, it feels unbelievable that a key part of British history and Welsh history barely feels known. And why, for so long, this has been glossed over and not interrogated, when the evidence, as Marion says at the start, was there all along, hiding in plain sight. I think in many ways they just didn't know how to deal with that information. It also strikes very closely to how the Welsh felt about themselves and how they feel about themselves or how we feel about themselves. I'm Welsh, I'm Welsh speaking, I come from the heartland of, you know, Welsh speaking Wales. And so I know at a very personal level what this actually means. Because of the relationship of Wales with England, there's a tendency for some within the Welsh community to think of themselves as victims of English colonialism. So to think of Welsh people as being perpetrators has never sat comfortably with people. And say, for example, one of our, I suppose, more popular editors, social commentators a few years ago, he actually said that no Welshman ever took part in the empire. Now, we know this is not true. We certainly know this is not true. And he defends his statement by saying, yes, of course, he knows that Welshmen did take part in the empire. But when they did so, they did so not as Welshmen, and that's the term he uses, Welshmen, but as Britishers. That is, they weren't Welsh when they did it. That distance, that separation. But of course, we know that Welsh people played their part in empire as much as other nationalities did as well. Detangling the dense strands of the Welsh plains cloth has taken me deeper into the heart of the British plantation society than I've been before. For the first time, I have a glimpse of how the livelihoods of ordinary working class people became bound up in the slave trade. It's made more complex by those workers being Welsh, itself an original colony of England. I'm not ready to leave the story behind yet, and I think there's more threads to unravel. Human Resources was produced by Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz. The original song you heard was Tudor Gwynn's Suganami Jones, which is about Sir Henry Morgan. Steel Pan and Flute by Sean Herbert. Extra sound recordings, Sandra Dobrzemski and Jay Hope on violin, and James Collins, choral vocals. Our production assistant is Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>